The Barons of Memphis, Marnie Gellhorn. Chapter 9, Lafayette's Music Room. When he produced a record by a child harmonica player, Hunter pushed to include one of his songs. Then he demanded additional album credits and threatened to submerge the album if he didn't get his way. He got his way and the album received critical recognition for the harmonica player's talent. Hunter's credits on the songs helped him get on the board of Grammys, but despite this accomplishment, he was about to enter the downward slide of his career. The family of the harmonica player complained to the record company. By this time, Willie Mitchell was old and frail. Diabetes had taken his leg, and Papa Mitchell was tired. He was too tired to defend Hunter against his family, and he was tired of having to defend Hunter. There was just something wrong with that kid, he thought. Even after all these years, he just didn't know how to act right. He'd given Hunter unprecedented opportunities, but his naked ambition just wasn't matched by any sort of work ethic or any special talent. He'd expected all the partying and such when Hunter was a teenager, especially hanging around this crowd. What he couldn't fathom was the sense of entitlement. He didn't know if it came from being white, privileged, or having a mom that still bailed him out, but Hunter just had a vastly overrated opinion of himself. It had taken him a long time to see it. Far too long, Willie knew, but once he realized what Hunter was really like, he couldn't unsee it. Now that was all he could see. It was like one of those movies where aliens pretend to be just like regular people until the hero gets special glasses. Then the hero can see that the aliens are really lizards. Hunter was a lizard, and Willie could see it now, even without glasses. Things had finally come to a head when the rest of the family started to get wind of Hunter's schemes to try to take part of Royal Records for himself. He thought he could displace Willie's children if he undermined them often enough. At first, Willie had likened it to a sibling rivalry of sorts, but Hunter's behavior just got more and more manipulative, destructive, and vindictive. He worried that Hunter would attempt to sabotage the company once he realized what was about to happen to him. But Willie was too tired. It was time for the rest of the family to pick up the slack. They could worry about Hunter. At the next company meeting, when his son and daughter lobbied to fire Hunter, Papa Mitchell just nodded his head. He felt a huge sense of relief knowing Hunter would be gone for good. Willie died shortly after. So he never knew that right after Hunter was fired, someone attempted to break into the studio. The studio was in a poor black neighborhood, so robberies and attempted break-ins were not entirely uncommon. But this came on the heels of vandalization of several cars belonging to members of the Mitchell family. Boo Mitchell and his sister had their suspicions, but without concrete proof 
Once again, Boo stayed silent. For his part, Hunter decried the unfairness of his firing far and wide around Memphis. It didn't take long for new acquaintances to hear about his mistreatment at the hands of the Mitchell family. The more Hunter drank, which was a lot these days, the more he would run his mouth. Stories didn't have to get back to the Mitchell family. Hunter did a fine job of alienating just about everyone he met with his continued bitterness. The Mitchells, for their part, kept their heads above the fray and remained gracious and polite on the rare occasions when they encountered Hunter at a music function. However, those encounters started happening less and less as Hunter's alcoholism and drug use became more and more frequent. He became openly abusive and reckless to everyone around him. A gentle buzz which brought out the charming, effusive Hunter was replaced with the staggering, slurring, hostile, and angry man. Word got out quickly among the music scene, and Hunter was no longer welcome. However, the news among Memphis's Jewish community was no more than a trickle, and Memphis society at a large remained unaware of the changes in Hunter's fortunes. But money had become a real problem. He no longer had spending money for his expensive habits and entertaining, and Bell refused to give him any. He became increasingly angry and embittered at her refusal to give him what he considered his inheritance and birthright. This made Bell increasingly angry, and there were frequent verbal fights and increasing altercations. In a 12-month period, There were over 17 police calls to the big house in Cordova. As one neighbor later said, That family single-handedly turned our block into a high-crime neighborhood. Bell had turned off the tap. Hunter was forced to seek more regular employment. He ended up bouncing from job to job until he found a part-time job at the airport working security. He still managed to be the man about town with a series of positions that offer titles if little else. He became a real estate agent following in his mother's footsteps except instead that he only sold properties once or twice a year. Several longtime friends offered him various positions but were only burned for their trouble. Instead of thanks, They were greeted with exorbitant salary demands from someone who knew the course well enough to be a frequent nuisance. He also took over his mother's eviction proceedings in exchange for small amounts of money. Of course, his idea of a fair exchange was very different from his mother's, which instigated a whole new round of arguments in the barren home. This episode was narrated by Zipporah Gray of RMP Studios in Memphis, Tennessee.